Welcome to episode 8 of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. If you're listening to this, that means it's Monday and I'm in the Bahamas. No, seriously, I I am. I'm firmly ensconced in the Lucian archipelago under the protection of Charles III, keeping my distance from Cuba and awaiting a ship back to Florida and to all I hold close and dear. So, my predictions, made publicly on the last episode, were wrong. I said that the GOP would likely take a net three Senate seats. Instead, they've either lost one, which takes them to 49, or stayed at 50, which keeps them in the minority because Kamala Harris is the vice president and can break ties. I said that the GOP would likely win 30 seats in the House. That didn't happen either. They're on track to win a majority, but it's looking as if it'll be around two. My predictions about New York and Michigan were correct. My predictions about Florida were correct. And in fact, they understated the size of that wave. I was wrong about the House and the Senate for a few reasons. I thought that the polls were broadly correct, and that even if they weren't, they were likely to understate Republican support. Now, the polls, in one sense, were correct, but they didn't understate Republican support, and the Republican support that there was didn't translate into seats in the way that many, including myself, had assumed. I was also wrong because I live in Florida and because there was clearly a disconnect between the atmosphere here and the atmosphere in the country at large. There was a hilarious segment a few days ago on, uh, I think, NBC that featured a reporter telling a studio anchor that he tried to find a Charlie Crist voter outside of a Charlie Crist rally but he just couldn't do it. He even took to stopping cars and trawling diners, and still he could not find anyone who was voting for Charlie Crist. And that's what it was like here. It felt as if Florida had decided a few months ago that DeSantis and Rubio and all the other Republicans were going to win, and that Floridians had just accepted it and moved on. And I thought that while this was not going to be as pronounced in the rest of the country, it would at least exist on some scale. And given that Florida's historically been a swing state, I assume that if it was going to be 10 to 15 points in Florida, it would be at least three in Pennsylvania. But uh, it wasn't. The last reason I got it wrong And maybe the most important reason I got it wrong is that I forgot my own concerns. Six months ago, I was highly concerned about the candidates that the GOP had chosen and about Donald Trump's continued influence on the party and on that process. 
And I forgot that. I just stopped factoring it in to my expectations. I looked at the prevailing conditions, near double-digit inflation, rising interest rates, a likely recession, the president's low approval ratings, right track, wrong track. And I assumed that candidate quality wouldn't matter. And I shouldn't have done that because it did matter. It mattered hugely. If the Republican Party had taken advantage of the tried and tested candidates that had won in its previous wave years, it would likely have done a lot better. If Doug Ducey had run for the Senate in Arizona, if Chris Sununu had run for the Senate in New Hampshire, if Pat Toomey had wanted to stay in the Senate in Pennsylvania, things might have looked different. But they didn't. And instead, we got a bunch of third-tier candidates handpicked by Donald Trump. And even J.D. Vance in Ohio, who won, ran 16 points behind the Republican gubernatorial candidate. Rob Portman, who retired this year from that Senate seat in Ohio, won in 2016 by 21. There's a difference. So my, my takeaways are that I need to learn a little bit more about polling and watch against getting caught up in late-stage polling groupthink, that I need to learn, internalize, remember, that the environment in Florida can just be completely different than the rest of the country. And that the Republican Party really does need to cut ties with Donald Trump. Now, look, I, I get it. I'm not a good messenger for this. I have never liked Donald Trump. I didn't want him to be the nominee. I didn't like a lot of his behavior while he was president. I was appalled by his conduct after the election of 2020, and I thought that he should have been impeached and convicted for his attempt to stage a coup. Not by being present before a riot, but by trying to rewrite the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act to make Mike Pence a dictator and declare himself the winner. I didn't like Trump's candidates in 2022 either, and hell, I don't like him or them now. The day before Election Day, he started taking shots at the governor of Florida, who I think's done a really good job, and not shots on policy grounds. I've criticized DeSantis often on policy grounds myself, but on stupid, unhelpful name-calling grounds. So I get it. It's hardly a news story that I want the GOP to abandon Trump. But I really don't think that one has to dislike Trump in order to see the problem here. As long-time listeners will know, I have never taken the view that because Trump did something, it was therefore bad. I've long thought that was a cult view as cultish a view, in fact, than that he could do no wrong. I have never confused my criticisms of Trump with disdain 
for his voters either. I've never believed that it was unacceptable for someone to dislike Trump but vote for him because they considered it the lesser of two evils. I've never abandoned my political preferences purely because they lined up with Trump's. If Trump did something I liked, which he did very often as president, I've been happy to praise him for it. In other words, I've never really understood this idea of the Trump train. People on both sides often ask, are you on the Trump train? Or are you off the Trump train now? And I've never really known what that means. It would be profoundly odd for anyone, let alone for a writer, to preemptively commit to endorsing or opposing everything that a politician did or said. The question here always has to be, what's the question? Now, if the question is, do you like that Donald Trump imposed tariffs that you oppose? My answer is obviously no. If the question is, do you like that Donald Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court? My answer is obviously yes. As president, he was a public servant, and I don't commit myself to public servants. For this reason, some writers who used to call themselves conservatives, and some who still do, have just baffled me over the last few years. Because they didn't like Trump, they abandoned everything they ever believed in even if it had nothing much to do with Trump in the first place. I don't understand how a person, for example, could be pro-life and then become pro-choice because Trump was the Republican nominee, but that happened. I don't understand how a person could think that school choice was a great and righteous cause and then turn against it because Trump was the Republican nominee. But that happened. I don't understand how a person could believe that for the Constitution to be legitimate, it must be interpreted according to its original public meaning. But then ignore that because Trump was the Republican nominee. But that happened. These positions are either worthwhile or they're not. And to subordinate them to politicians is to let the tail wag the dog. And no, I don't understand the opposite, which is to base one's politics on Trump's whims, to believe that this or that person is good or bad depending on what Trump thinks, to reason backwards at every available opportunity from premises that are set by one man, which is is all a long way of saying that what I really care about is not Trump, but ideas. Sometimes Trump has intersected well with those ideas, and sometimes he has not. But it is those ideas that matter. And right now, the case for Trump as the steward or champion of those ideas is non-existent. Again, I understand I'm not the perfect messenger for this. But again, it doesn't matter whether you like Trump or loathe him, or whether you like me or loathe me. If your aim is to advance conservatism of any stripe, if your aim is to block the progressive agenda, it should be clear by now that Trump is an obstacle to that end. Here's a harsh truth. Trump's electoral record is not that great. It's worse than Richard Nixon's. It's worse than Ronald Reagan's. It's worse than George H.W. Bush's. 
it's worse than George W. Bush's. In terms of absolute votes, it's worse than Mitt Romney's. Trump eked out a win in 2016 against the most disliked woman in America. And since then, it's all been downhill. The Republicans lost around 40 House seats in 2018. Trump lost re-election to Joe Biden in 2020. And last Tuesday, Trump's candidates did absolutely terribly in almost every race they ran. Now, it would be great, of course, if we lived in a country in which everyone agreed with me or with you. But they don't. And we can't make them. This is a a big, beautiful, rambunctious, geographically diverse country. And as it always has, it's going to feature all sorts of people and all sorts of ideas and take all sorts of political candidates to appeal to them. And Trump and his picks, they don't appeal enough. And that's not going to change. And funnily enough, Trump has been given far longer to make his case than any other Republican in recent memory. He was given a shot in 2016 and in 2020. And then, having lost in 2020, he was still presumed to be the frontrunner. When was the last time that happened? Nobody said in 1996, it's got to be Bush. Nobody said in 2012, it's got to be McCain. Nobody said in 2016, it's got to be Romney. Trump's case in 2016, and on its own terms, it was a reasonable one, even if I think it was based on a misreading of why the GOP had lost the last two elections, was look at these guys they keep putting up. They're losing, and we need a change because this is so important. Well, that case applies now too. Look at these guys they keep putting up. Look at the party's center of gravity. We keep losing. We need a change because this is so important. Whether it's fair or not, and by the way, that's irrelevant, because we don't get to decide how other people vote or whether they're consistent or what they care about, most of the public is not prepared to give conservatives a chance if it thinks they're Trump-adjacent. In Ohio, Mike DeWine won by 22 points. J.D. Vance won by 8. In Georgia, Brian Kemp, who took on Trump's lies about 2020, won by 8 points. Herschel Walker is now in a runoff. Dr. Oz lost. Blake Masters lost. The replacement for Peter Meyer in Michigan lost. Tudor Dixon lost. The polling shows that voters who were somewhat dissatisfied with Joe Biden went for the non-Trump candidates, but not for the Trump candidates. They went for Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. They didn't go for Baldock. They went for Kemp, not for Walker. They went for DeWine, not for Vance. In a lot of states, that's the difference between winning and losing. Now, I don't know if Ron DeSantis is the future of the GOP. I don't know if he could win a presidential election. There are many good questions about DeSantis that remain unanswered. Can he make the step up to the national stage? Does he have good answers on federal questions such as trade and immigration and foreign policy? 
How does he fare in states such as Michigan and Pennsylvania? What happens when he has to recommend big changes instead of largely keeping the ship as it is, as he has in Florida outside of COVID-19? But I do know that he and many others, Greg Abbott, Tim Scott, are much better bets at this point than is Trump who narrowly won in 2016, and who lost in 2020, and who has been a drag on the party in both the 2018 and 2022 midterms. The question now is as opposed to what? Ron DeSantis as opposed to what? Greg Abbott as opposed to what? Donald Trump as opposed to what? And I think that it is clear now that if the Republican Party wants to win again, it needs to look elsewhere and it needs to look elsewhere fast. Which brings me to animatronics. My guest today is Josh Sauerman, who is the creative director for Animax Designs, which is a character animatronics company based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Josh emailed me because he knows that I love roller coasters and amusement parks. And he said, in effect, hey, I I do this job. You might be interested. Let me know. And I said, great, please come on the podcast. Because he struck me as a perfect guest. So a couple of weeks later, and here he is to tell me all about the world of animatronics from the inside. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So what is... An animatronic. Yeah, animatronic is a term that can be kind of loosely defined. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have a pure dictionary definition, but it generally means some kind of a robot that is supposed to be a character. So whether that's a human or a cartoon character or an animal, uh, but it's utilizing robotic techniques to create life. And who invented them? The earliest kind of versions, I mean, automatons go back to uh, ancient Greek days and into the Middle Ages. But kind of modern animatronics really showed up that there was kind of a precursor uh, that was in around 1939 at a World's Fair that was a a robotic man and his dog. Times have changed somewhat, but it could smoke cigarettes. It could kind of walk along a rail. The dog could wag its tail and sit up and down and bark. But the modern version of animatronics as we know them today was really developed by Walt Disney. So the term audio animatronic is a trademark term of the Walt Disney Company, sometimes called AAs uh, within their company. And that was trademarked by Disney in the 1960s. And then those showed up in Mary Poppins, uh, if you've ever seen. That was the, an early film animatronic, is the spoonful of sugar scene with the robin that lands on Julie Andrews' hand. And then as he developed his theme parks, he started to place them into, into the theme parks. The first Disney-specific one that would have been seen that's more of a modern theme park animatronic was at the 1964 World's Fair, and it was for uh, words with Mr. Lincoln. It was an Abraham Lincoln that would stand up from a chair and give the Gettysburg Address. And a version of that is actually still at Disneyland today. So I think most people will have seen animatronics at Disney. There's a Disney World, you have the Hall of Presidents, I think is full of animatronics, and a lot of the rides are full of animatronics. Where else would you find animatronics today? You'll find them in lots of entertainment centers. There's the classic Chuck E. Cheese animatronics, most of which I think are all gone now. 
You'll find them in toys, a lot of modern toys you could call animatronics, starting from Furbies all the way into uh, sort of modern toys that you can find uh, of characters that walk around and that interact. Other places that are very common is the film business, right? So uh, Jurassic World is famous for the the T-Rex animatronic from the 1990s. There's a ton that have come from that. And like I said earlier, the, the Mary Poppins was the original animatronic in film. And that industry has also grown. And that's probably where a lot of people see them as well on the screen, not in real life. So how on earth did you get into this? <laughs> you don't just drop into being an animatronic creative director, right? Yeah, this, this industry kind of found me. I, I studied mathematics in college, but I was always a big fan of Disney animation. And so I was a draftsman and I was doing lots of artwork on the side and I built my own animation desk. But I was working after college, uh, actually thinking I might want to be a lawyer. So that's a whole different story. But I was doing my own animations on the side and keeping a blog and, and started trying to get into the artistic world. I did an animation program, so learned character animation from animators at Pixar, Disney, those kinds of places. And I was keeping my own portfolio and somebody in this industry happened to find me and reached out and said, I think that your mathematics and art, that kind of combination would be a really good combination for this world of character animatronics. And so that's what really introduced me to the field. So I want to understand how animatronics work. You're sitting at your desk with a blank piece of paper. What is the first thing you do? Our company generally is hired to produce custom animatronics. Um, those are often intellectual property or IP based. So it's characters that people already know and love from different brands. If we're developing it ourselves, then we'd start with either sketching it out on paper or we'd start in the digital world. We use a program called ZBrush or a program called Maya. One is a sculpting program, one is an animation program to start developing the characters, to start developing their personalities and to start trying to figure out how should they sit within a space that will meet the show requirements? How should they move? What number of axes should they have? How should those axes be aligned? What should those ranges of motion be? All those kinds of initial things that set that creative scope. And then we'll pass that on to our engineering team. We'll usually work with them as we're developing the creative scope to make sure we're not going too far outside of the possible. And then they'll start building it. And we use a program called SolidWorks, which is a CAD program that builds out mechanical designs. And the creative team that I run will be in very close contact with our engineers as they develop their mechanical systems to make sure we're keeping the creative intent, make sure we're keeping those ranges of motion, making sure that there aren't any uh, strange things that we'll have to worry about of skins bunching or things colliding with themselves. We have to worry a lot about whether, whether a character is going to be able to hit itself or harm itself because in operational situations, given enough time, that'll almost always happen if it's possible. And so then we have to work out risk and mitigation strategies, and then control systems that will allow all of that to work seamlessly and make shows look good for guests and look so seamless that they'll never know how much goes into it and what's all going on in the background. Have you ever had an absolute disaster in the production process where an animatronic came out and it was just creepy or its skin bunched or it started hitting itself or blew apart? Absolutely. All the time. That's, that's, pretty par for the course. Almost always when we first build a character, we discover that there's something that's particularly on the figure finish side. We discover that there are wrinkles that don't look right, that skins are too thin in areas or too thick or fabrics are bunching in weird ways. There was one time we were doing a human animatronic. I was here at about 2 a.m. and I was working on animating the figure 
and I changed the animation slightly. And this was not a figure that was intrinsically safe. And I played the animation. I was not careful enough at that early hour in checking that it wasn't going to hit itself. And his arm slammed right into his thigh. And the whole figure went into a emergency stop fault situation. And luckily, it didn't harm anything too badly, but we had to run it through a whole kind of health sequence, make sure that all the motors, all the wires, all the mechanical assembly was okay. And I hadn't broken something about a week before it needed to ship. So how long does it take? I mean, you say all the motors, all the wires, you're going through these processes. You sit down with your piece of paper, you design an animatronic. And how long is it from there to having a, a working finished product that you can ship to an amusement park or what you will? That all really depends on, uh, on the need. If it's a one or two function animatronic, that can be done pretty quickly. Uh, the more complex it gets for bigger clients, for the bigger theme parks, it can be, in our ideal world, it's usually between 12 and 24 months of a build time, with 12 being very, very short. It's occasionally, we, we actually just installed a character that is one of the best that we've ever done that was finished in about seven months start to finish, which was incredibly rapid and involved a lot of focus and a lot of overtime and a lot of resources to get that done. So you mentioned animatronics in movies, Mary Poppins, for example, and you mentioned animatronics in amusement parks. Now, are those the same thing, just in different locations, or do they have different needs? Do they work differently? What's the deal? Yeah, people are usually surprised to find out how different they are. In the 1960s, they were almost the same thing. So the one in Mary Poppins was, was very similar to what would have been in the theme parks around that time. But over the, the decades, they've really gone in different directions. And that's primarily based on the, the needs of the mechanism and on just how long that they last. So for a film, the character really needs to, it has two needs. It needs to look good on screen and it needs to last long enough to get through the shot. So anything that's off of screen can look terrible, can be full of wires. A lot of the insides of characters, they're, they're incredibly skilled craftspeople who make those. Um, but because the needs are for the screen, they're usually made with uh, lower quality actuators, lower quality motors. There's a lot of different uh, like zip ties or hot glue or kinds of materials that we wouldn't be using quite so much on the, the theme park side. Whereas the theme park side requires very, very heavy engineering because we end up having in a couple of months, a figure will cycle itself millions and millions of times. So if anything is wrong, if anything rubs against itself, if anything is out of whack, problems will just propagate and get worse and worse and worse. We also have to think about access to maintain the characters for maintenance schedules, kind of like your car, how you have to be able to access all the mechanical parts of your car to get them fixed. We have to make sure that we have hatches, that we have zippers, that we have ways to get inside the figure so technicians in the field can make sure that they're still working. And then materials-wise, film animatronics are very commonly made of, uh, there's a material called foam latex. Uh, that's what the Tyrannosaurus in Jurassic Park was made of. That's what a lot of puppets, characters like Miss Piggy, was originally made from that. It's a great material that squishes and stretches really well, but it does not have a very long lifespan. And so we have to think about materials that are going to be able to withstand years and years being outside, sometimes inside, oftentimes more and more outside, which has its own set of requirements because we have to make everything out of synthetic materials. If we make it out of natural materials, then squirrels and birds and roaches and all those kinds of things will get inside and take it and turn it into nests. So we have to really be aware of what the situation is going to be to make this last longer. How do you program an animatronic? Do you sit with a computer and plot the points on a line? Do you use a joystick? 
do you have someone come in like Andy Serkis and wire him up and have him move around and then translate those movements to the technology? How does it work? We have a couple different ways that figures are operated. Some some ways where we do it pre-recorded, what we'll call canned animation, but sometimes it will be live performed. We do a lot of animatronic puppets, if you will, hybrid. So a usual canned show will have the character rigged in Maya. And so rigging is effectively creating a digital puppet that we can move around. And then we'll animate it in Maya. And we have a direct connection between Maya to the figure. So we can sit in front of a 45 foot long Tyrannosaurus and send the animation to it and watch it move and change it in real time, which is always very exciting and, and very intimidating if it's a big and fast creature. There are also characters we've made where they're live puppeteered by performers. And so there may be like a joystick, a trigger, uh, like a gaming trigger that they would use. We've also set up characters that are controlled by either HMI tablets, um, so human machine interface tablets, so like an iPad or a Surface Book, Surface Pro, or we have characters that have been controlled by Xbox controllers, things like that. We've done some work in motion capture as well, but we usually don't directly port motion capture into a figure. We would run that through some filters and run it through our Maya rig to make sure that there's no collisions or danger points before we port it directly into the mechanism itself. So that dinosaur in Jurassic Park is an animatronic? Correct. Wow. For, for many of the scenes, not necessarily all of it. They, they did a great job in that film of having some moments that are computer generated and some moments that are the real animatronic. So maybe the close-ups when the T-Rex is down by the car, for example, that sort Correct. of thing would be done in an animatronic. And then maybe when they're running, you do it with a... Because that would be a limitation, running, I imagine. They can't move off the spot, right? That is the next big frontier for animatronics. As you see companies like uh, Boston Dynamics who are creating really cool uh, mobile robots, that's the next big step in animatronics is they, you're right, in the past, they've always had to be hooked up to a wall, they've had to be on the floor, they've had to have some, something that holds their frame down. And one of the exciting things that's happening in this industry is pushing more towards the mobile nature of robotics and getting them untethered. When you go to amusement parks, assuming you go to amusement parks, do you find yourself staring at the animatronics on the rides instead of enjoying them? Yeah, absolutely. Nowadays, I do. I grew up going to the Disney parks um, and occasionally Universal. And in Florida. Really enjoying them. Yeah, in Florida. And just appreciating those a lot. But now when I go, I certainly have a much more focused eye, a much more critical eye. I'm looking out for a lot of the things that, that most guests aren't necessarily looking for. I'm trying to figure out where the wire runs are going. I'm trying to figure out how they're dealing with scenic or water mitigation. I'm trying to figure out how they're hiding different gags with either lighting tricks or with uh, setting up guest sight lines so they can hide the things they don't want guests to see in a way that's, that's innocuous and that you would never notice. I'm paying attention to the gaps that they may have. So like when we build an eye blink, we need to have very small gaps so that the eyeball and the eyelid aren't rubbing on each other because otherwise they'll scratch each other and over time will look really bad. So I look out for those things, see how well they're done. I'm the, t the person who will be lifting my phone up high or over a fence to see if I can find a mechanism by recording my phone <laughs> with that. I don't, I don't recommend other people do that because uh, it kind of takes you out of the, the moment. But uh, for someone like me who's really fascinated in how they're made, it's a, a fun thing to try to solve solve the gag is it the same with movies 
to just sit there and work out how they did it. I do. Uh, movies more and more don't use physical animatronics. They're, they've gone back a little bit to it because I think a lot of audiences have wanted to see physical things and have started to feel that too much computer-generated uh, animation just doesn't fit if it's interacting with real humans. So it has been fun to watch um, different recent films uh, that have like Jurassic World Dominion that just came out. There are a number of shots that you can tell are obviously CG. And then there are others that are fun to see because you see the, that they're actually animatronics. They're actually puppet characters. You can count me among those audiences. I think CGI has obviously got so much better since I was a kid. But there are movies now that rely so heavily on CGI that you assume the whole thing must have been shot against a green screen and it just looks wrong. Yep. And then when you go back, you know, I showed my kids Jurassic Park for the first time recently, and it looks incredible. Yep. I mean, I was standing there, we had the 4K version, watching the screen and thinking, I generated, uh, and especially with the close-up shots you mentioned, where they, where they sort of touch the dinosaurs or the running away from the, the dinosaurs, it's, um, yeah, there's obviously a role for it, because it, it feels much more natural to me. Yeah. And I think that that's also the value of even in physical experiences, uh, there tends to be a, a flow back and forth between wanting things to be more media driven, which tends to cost less, uh, but then wanting to have that tactile, that physical nature like real animatronics. And so we always really enjoy it when an experience wants to bring in the physical because it's, it's such a different experience for a guest to have, to actually have something in front of you that's real, that you interacts in a real way and isn't just on a screen. Oh, so my last question, I assume there will be a few people who are listening to this and they're thinking, that sounds like quite a cool job. So you said you essentially were headhunted, but if someone listening has decided from this that they want to work with animatronics, what should they do in school and habit forming to make that more likely? That's a great question. It, it really depends on uh, sort of what part of the animatronic space they'd want to get into. So if they want to be a mechanical designer and do, do the internal mechanisms, then they should do mechanical engineering. And there are certain schools that, that you can look at that have more of a focus on entertainment animatronic uh, kind of engineering. Um, they tend to be in the Florida region. I think that Carnegie Mellon has a history with working with Imagineers and that kind of stuff. So that's if you want to be an engineer. If you want to be on the creative side, then being an animator is fantastic but really learning how physical properties work. We have a lot of puppeteers here. We have a lot of people who worked in films. They studied film, makeup, film, uh, sculpture, mold making, fabrics, all the kind of tactile, physical stuff that goes into producing films. So those are the two kind of directions, the engineering side and then the more creative side that can get you at least a step into this world. All right. Well, Josh Salmon, thank you so much for coming on talking to me about animatronics. I appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. It was great. And that's all we have time for this week. If you aren't already subscribed to this podcast, but you would like to be, it's pretty easy. All you need to do is go to podcast.charlescwcook.com and either hit the Apple Podcasts logo, if you want Apple Podcasts, or if you want any of the other services, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on, hit the listen and subscribe link and choose your service there. 
thank you to my guest today, Josh Sauerman, for telling me all about the world of animatronics. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>